Welcome, travelers. I'm Josh. I'm Glenn. And I'm Lee Wanika. This is Tabletop Journeys, where we will be your humble guides along the journey to RPG adventures. We are all D&D role players and storytellers at heart. It's where we started out, and it's where we find ourselves most at home. So here in our main podcast episodes, we discuss the core rules, how to use them as written, and how to homebrew your own content to get the most out of your story. Because detailed settings, heroic characters, vibrant NPCs, and a focus on story over rules is what makes a campaign legendary. from today's sponsor. Hey everybody, Mr. Dave here. I want to tell you all about... Oh, Mr. Dave! Mr. Dave! Hey Arnold, what can I do for you? I was just about to tell everybody all about the show. That's why I'm here. I thought of the wonderful way to do the commercial. Oh yeah? What's that? In song. It's educational. It's sensational. It's our puppet invitational. To join us each week for some fun. Sit back and relax. Grab some popcorn or some snacks. And get ready for the show. Sing along and get to know the sensation across the nation. It's a music-filled vacation. All your senses will be whirring and your brain cells will be stirring. It's the show you want to say. It's fun time with Mr. Day. That was a great idea, Arnold. You can find Fun Time with Mr. Dave on Facebook and Instagram at Dave the Entertainer and on YouTube by searching Mr. Dave with an exclamation mark. See you next time. Welcome to Tabletop Journeys, everybody. We are going to be continuing our series of subclass rankings for Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition. Tonight, we have got our fourth in the series, I think, if my, if my counting is correct. This is number four. Uh, and it is our second, which was fan-sourced, Thank you, everybody, so much for voting. Uh, it's a lot of fun to go ahead and throw those out there and to see what everybody thinks uh, we want to do. I was I was surprised that this one was so popular. We I, I totally figured that Cleric was going to win, uh, but it was pretty clear early in the voting that Fighter was going to win by a by a mile um and so thank you everybody for voting that was fantastic um i will say i know that on the facebook group in particular there was a lot of call for us to do warlock and so uh on the next survey warlock is going to be one of the options and so keep that in mind but and make sure you vote absolutely everybody just get in on these uh, on these polls uh steer the directions i mean we are a ship that has a rudder and currently the three of us are at the till uh, by all means, get in and take over. Without further ado, let's dive in. Uh, and everybody listening, you're going to find that tonight's episode is going to be a little bit less contentious than Sorcerer was. We seem to be in more agreement for the fighter subclasses than we were for Sorcerer. No guarantees that this isn't going to come to blows. I think I'm, I'm glad that they're like six hours away from me because otherwise, who knows what could happen here. But let's go ahead and dive in. So we're going to do the same thing that we did with all of the uh, the other subclass episodes that we've done. 
We are going to go over them in the order that they were released. Uh, and so we're going to start with our player handbook uh, uh, subclasses. And the first one in the player's handbook, as Mr. Miller called it, the fighter's fighter, we have the champion. Luanico, why don't you get started? Yeah, uh, correct. I definitely feel the champion is the fighter's champion. I was doing a little research prior to the episode, and I noticed or read that this was the subclass that is listed as one of the best subclasses to give a brand new player to the game to start with. And they're not wrong. This subclass is fantastic. It has great things that happen with it. It does great things, but they're very simple things. It doesn't confuse you with lots of options. It doesn't confuse you with lots of action economy choices and questions. It basically hits hard. And as you go up in levels, it hits often. And then when it hits hard, it really, really, really hits hard. The interesting thing about this, I'm not a new player. I think this is one of those subclasses that ranks higher based on your length of time in the game, based on, you know, some personal choices in general, but also based on the level of complexity you want out of this game. So I love tactical choices. I love making those decisions. So as I rank this in comparison with the other subclasses, it really fell down because of that but I don't want anybody to think its rank has anything to do with the fact that it's not a good subclass. It's a fantastic subclass. It's just a matter of it's not the kind of thing I am playing these days. And I think that's kind of my, my take on it. How about you, Glenn? I get that. I definitely get what you're saying. And I do agree, but you know, I can also really get behind the old classic, you know, the trope and the champion is kind of that, the, the trope you called him the fighters fighter. I called him the beefcake fighter um, because he's the fight. The, it's the fighter designed around physical stats. You know, it's not about strategy. You know, it's, it's a pure physical specimen and that goes into the, the subclass too, with some of the skills they get for athletics and things like that. And it is a lot more simple than some of the complex classes, but I'm going to continue to throw out there that the more we complex the Kate, <laughs> I like that word. Complexicate? Yes. Complexicate. I decided to go with it. It's a made up word, but I love it. The, the more we complexicate the individual pieces of the classes, the subclasses, almost making their own unique things, the more of a burden you're putting on, we're, we're putting on me as a storyteller to know and understand a vast and complex rule set which is one of the th reasons why they, down they scaled back. So sometimes I worry they go a little far with the, with the complete reimaginings, though they're fun. But this one is a basic setup. It, you hit it right on the head. It's short, it's simple, but it is balanced and accurate. It doesn't give you a gazillion abilities, but by the time you know, you're getting two attacks where you're critting on 19s and 20s, and later you crit on 18s as well, plus a second fighting style, I mean, the champion is solid admittedly a lot of the flavor that he's going to have is going to be what i bring to him you know the way i choose to play him the quirks that i give him but to me when i play a fighter that's always the way it goes anyway it's all about you know how is this one going to be different um but the champion's fun i could play one i could have a great time but i rated it kind of across the middle of the board because of that it has all the basics but it just doesn't doesn't really you know push my buttons quite as well as i'd like it to yeah, no, uh, Glenn, I, I am I'm totally with you, and I ranked the champion a lot lower than you did. Its mechanics are 
are really solid for the most part. I, I thought that the the mid ability uh, where you can add half of your proficiency bonus to strength and dexterity and con checks, I thought that that was weaker compared to the bonus that rogues get at similar level for the same kind of proficiency checks. Um, so, you know, and, and again, that goes to the difference between what a fighter is going to be and what a rogue is going to be. A, a rogue is going to be that check skill master and that that's what they're designed to be and so i i didn't take off too many points for that i I thought mechanically this is very sound i thought that the superior critical uh particular that you talked about critting on 18s 19s and 20s is is that's potentially game changing like that's huge that's when you when you're dropping a critical 15 percent of your attack rolls that's insane um but you're right if i as a player don't have any flavor hooks to to latch onto. If it's all about how I'm going to role play, then we should not be grading flavor because, like, that's of course every character that I play is going to be role played fantastic. But it's got no flavor. It's it's it is a very it is it is really really generic. I don't think there's any way to make it better, and I don't think it's bad. I actually started uh, with the ranking with five with uh, fives across the board with a great uptick for what I play it again, because the answer is I absolutely would play it again. I know there's going to be a time where that's the character I'm going to play. I have no problem playing it. But what I did was as I ranked each one in order that the books came in, because that's how I did my rankings. I then said, do I like it better or worse than, than something else? And when I got done doing it that way, as opposed to picking a number and calling it, that ended up where it ended up. And so it came out a little lower because there's just things, there are things mechanically that I liked more than this. There are more that I liked by flavor. Notice it was not the lowest in anything. So it definitely has flavor, but if you're coming in around five out of 10, it may not quite be weak sauce, but it's kind of bland sauce. So I, th- I think we can we can move past champion and agree that it's 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 very much kind of your average fighter and that is very that's very on point I think for the player's handbook the first subclass that they put out in all of these classes that we have seen so far has been that very much middle of the road tropey character for that class we saw it with sorcerer we saw it with ranger we saw it with rogue we're seeing it again for fighter that the first one that they trot out there is kind of the if you're playing a cap f fighter here it is and it's the champion right so the next one was the battle master mm. the battle master uh i thought the more that i uncovered the battle master the more i thought the battle master sounded really fun to play and mechanically the battle master is so strong because of the maneuvers that you can take to go ahead and flesh out the diversity that the, you want to bring to the table as a fighter. And that's really, you know, when you read the description of what the fighter is all about, it is all about being a well-rounded military specialist. And that's the battle master with the, with the sheer number of possibilities. There are, there are what, like 20 maneuvers now that you can go ahead and pick from, and you get to pick them throughout levels as a battle master uh, mechanically. So super strong. And on top of that, there are even feats that will grant you more maneuvers so you can get beyond that. Oh, my God. Maneuvers. I love them. So feats definitely factor really heavily into any fighter build because last I checked again, I think that fighters get something like 17 or 18 feats by first level, something stupid like that. Right. And they are far and away the class that gets the most number of feats right by an order of magnitude. 
I think that again, it kind of like we were talking about how how if it's middle of the road, like if I have to role play it, you can't count that towards flavor. We have to leave feats out of the equation when we're talking about fighters, even though feats are really going to factor into your fighter build. It's a very important part of the build, but it's not a part of the subclass. And so that's I, I was very cautious to make sure that I wasn't looking at mechanics and saying, well, if I paired this with X feet, look at how strong it'll be. I'm trying to look at the mechanics purely for the subclass. I agree with you. And when we talk about a different subclass, I'm going to I'm going to raise my hand and say I kind of cheated and factored in a feat that you have to take to make this work really well. I will say that. Essentially, I love the Battlemaster. It was the absolute number one far and away favorite subclass I wanted to play of any class when I first picked up 5e. I saw it and wanted it. I didn't play it as my first character because it wasn't what was needed for that party, but it was in the back of my head to hold on to it for the right game because I wanted a game where tactics mattered. I wanted a game where I could be as tactically sound and intelligent as my tabletop gaming skills have led me to after all these years. And I wanted the right character lineage to back up what I was doing. I play a Warforged Battlemaster in a game that it is amazing. But, and this is a big but, it is exceptionally complex at times. It is very difficult to manage the number of attacks, the number of which maneuvers are bonus actions, which maneuvers are reactions, making sure you you when you're picking your choices, you don't have too many of one type or the other because then you never end up using them, making sure they're effective. Some add damage, some add to attack, some don't add to either. So you need to make sure you're doing the right things. There's a level of complexity that comes with this that puts it on par with some of the toughest spellcasters to play and some of the craziest rogues to play. And that level of complexity is not lost on me. I love that level of complexity. It makes me work harder to get the character right and to play it right. Uh, what I had to do is basically do a cheat sheet and have and build up tactical scenarios so I have a good idea of where to start from and then what my resources are to branch off from. That's how I did it. But Oh, this this subclass is brilliant. I think that really underscores the point that Glenn brought up earlier. So Glenn, why don't you continue with that? So yeah, I think the Battlemaster is really cool. I really like the ideas behind it. I love that it adds the the maneuvers, the moves of a trained master of combat, you know, a trained tactician. Um, I really like all of the concepts behind the way that it's written, but it's too complex. This is a perfect example of exactly what I'm talking about. It becomes so complex that even an experienced role player, one of the people that I've been role playing with since I was 11 years old, has trouble following it when he would be playing the class. That's saying something about the level of complexity, especially when you look at, and I really didn't realize this till later when I was looking at some of the other subclasses and then doing some reading on my own, the, the way the superiority dice work, in my opinion, is a little bit broken. It's too far reaching. It's too far spreading for the size of dice that it is. You're, have, you're talking about starting out at a D8 that can be applied to hit damage or skill. All right, a D8 to damage, that's not that big a deal. But to hit, it's pretty solid. Or to a skill check, that's pretty big. Most classes who have any kind of an ability that adds a bonus onto your a chance to hit or succeed in a skill, it's only a D4. Not a D8, let alone becoming a D10 and a D12 later. I really dig where they were trying to go with the Battlemaster, but I think they went 
too far, getting caught up in their own coolness, kind of like I really did when I was trying to design that battle bow thing that I'm still working on. You get caught up in the coolness and you're like, yeah, it's awesome. But it's it's too much and it's overbalanced, in my opinion. I hear your point, and I will offer this as a, as a counterpoint. The thing you need to understand about the Battlemaster and the size of those dice that you're starting with. When you're in that first tier of combat, you don't get that many of them. And while they replenish on a short rest, unless you're then taking a feat, which is a hell of a resource to get a couple more dice. And by the way, that would be locked in at a smaller size no matter what. So you're talking about a D6 anyway. Mm -hmm. You're talking about a thing you can do two times, eventually three times, and then maybe four times by the time you're into tier two. I realize this because my Battlemaster is now level 10. Per long rest or short rest? Per short rest. Okay. So Continue, but I have a so counter. <laughs> while I may have a fair amount of, of, of dice, I only get, a, get to use them a certain amount of times. Once you take factor in the fact that even at that larger size, you're only using them two or three times in, in the early, earlier levels, you add to the fact that there are only a very specific few choices that add to your to hit. There's only a very few specific maneuvers that adds to other things. Most of them just add to damage. Uh, and I think that was a conscious choice. So while you may have that one thing that adds to your to hit, you're really going to shoot that shot once. And for a fighter that gets multiple attacks within or right at the end of tier one, and if you're attacking twice, I have never been in a situation where I didn't use all of my, uh, of my uh, dice before the before the short rest like any fight that goes beyond five rounds and i'm pretty much out of dice or i'm saving them for the nova strike so in the end if you're in a single fight and you need to burn all five if that's all you have all three if that's all you have all two that's all you have i think that's what the game is trying to tell us with the short rest and honestly i agree i will still say though that if you're taking a die the size of a d8 and you're applying it both to a skill check and a damage check it, it's it's almost like two different currencies. It's like saying that you're going to give somebody X amount of apples, whether they need to roll for apples or oranges. Damage and to hit is a totally different metric. It's a totally different set of set of math. And to affect it by up to a D12, I don't know, man. I think that they go too far. Look at the side dice we're going to talk about in a little bit. They're going to stay where they should be. They don't go all over the place. I... I I'm going to I'm going to differ there and we're going to get to that but they stay more where they should be in my opinion. The next one that we have I think is probably the first of the subclasses where the three of us had some some pretty significant disagreement and that's the Eldritch Knight. And I will tell you where I disagreed and and the reason when I first ranked the Eldritch Knight I actually ranked it higher. Um and I am going to shout out to uh, to friend of the show Art, who played a Eldritch Knight in a campaign that I'm playing in. Um, it was after this last game session um, when I said that, you know, we're going to go ahead and record Fighter soon. We're going to be talking about it. I was really paying attention to how he was playing it because the, the Eldritch Knight, the character that he's playing is probably a level 12 Dragonborn Eldritch Knight, right? And I was watching the way that he played it. And I was watching kind of how he went through it. And I was like, man, you know, it just... It just seems like it is always so close to doing something cool, but never actually being able to fully realize it. And he's like, nope, I absolutely agree with you. He's like, the 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 thing that is so 
cool about the Eldritch Knight and gives it so much flavor, which is why I rated it so high in flavor. It is that great battle mage type fighter, right? Where it's got spellcasting ability and especially as a dragonborn, he's also got some special abilities there, but as also hits like a tank. But the big thing, the weapon bond that it has, that was honestly, there's a big flaw in the weapon bond. And the weapon bond is that uh, it, it, com- it comes down to action economy because the weapon bond you can so he was playing with a javelin and so he would throw the javelin and then use weapon bond to go ahead and pull it back right fantastic great use of the power because then and then you know he could go ahead and use his second and subsequent attacks the problem is that weapon bond is a bonus action and you only get one of those you even when you get multiple attacks you only get one ability to wet to wet to pull back your weapon using weapon bond it puts this it puts a limiter on the amount of effectiveness on all the rest of the eldritch knight's powers because so many of them are bonus actions you can only do one around so even though it's got these great powers it's got these great abilities it's got these great uh, it's got this great ability to affect certain things you can only do them certain time another classic example I, and again we talk a lot about the about the powers and where they are and how they how they're limited to everything but look at its upper level power its upper level power is basically is basically misty step right you get the ability to go ahead and move 30 feet unhindered without any problems but you can only do it on your action search you can't use it as you can't do it as an action you can't do, even do it as a bonus action you can only do it in your action search it's the same drum that we have beat numerous times throughout these episodes talking about subclasses. There's an odd limitation on a high-level power that makes it less useful. And we see that over and over again as we start to get into these subclasses that I guess they're putting these limitations in for game balance, but the way that these limitations are applied sometimes seems a little strange to me. I hear what you're saying, and I think I'm probably even though i think i might have ended up rating it slightly higher than you what i see the eldritch knight has going for it is i simply want to try it to see if i can figure a way to do what all of my research says can't be done which is make it work flavor flavor my desire to play it absolutely it's huge love it yeah mechanically i just don't know that it's there yeah, and it kind of dropped for me because of that. Look, this is the thing that we all come to the game and say, oh, look at that, fighter magic. How many shows do we watch where that is a thing? I truly like this. Interestingly, at all the 5e tables I've run and all the games I've been a part of, I've never been in a game where this character subclass was played. I hear people talk about it all the time, but I've never sat at a table where this was played. For as many games as I've been to, as many games as I've sat at as a player and as many games as I've run, including convention style games where people just bring in characters. And I have put a couple of these up as pre-gen so people could select them. It has never been played. It always left me to wonder why there's got to be something about that. I think some of its abilities are cool, but it's just got to be hard to build. Look, you've got divided priorities, strength, decks, con intelligence. How do you pick? I mean, it's like, what do you do if you're doing point by or or if you're doing anything other than rolling to generate your character and you don't roll well or, or, or you don't roll well, you can't build this so it'll work. You can't get the stats to make this work. Well, if you remember back in the day, multi-classing had 
stat requirements. And it was difficult to roll stats good enough to multi-class a fighter mage. It absolutely was. And I get that as they bring in 5e and they say you should be able to play anything. It strikes me that they made this one so difficult to build well. And like you said, the higher level features, Arcane Charge is kind of impressive, but uh, at the end, the War Magic feature, I, I, I guess, I think the things just happen out of order or too late, aren't enough. I'm not sure what the mix is. It just doesn't quite get it in those regards, and it, I kind of marked it down for that. It's still ranked fairly highly, but that's because... I love the flavor of this character subclass and I really want to play one to give it a go, but I can't justify it being higher than it showed up. Well, so, so do I, I have it ranked very high. I, as I'm listening to y'all, I'm realizing that mechanically you're right. I hadn't really thought about the action economy and how limited it is. It doesn't change my enthusiasm on most of my other scores, however, uh, because I think it's full of flavor. I think the fighter mage back in the day when everybody was trying to build one and make it be kind of cool and successful was awesome then, too. I mean, in second edition, when you got it multi-classed off right, it could be really cool. He would never be the star of the show. And I don't think the Eldritch Knight will be either. Um, but that's something that when I set up a, a class and maybe maybe that's a difference for me. Um, when I'm looking at a class or a role that I'm thinking about playing, I'm not always thinking of myself as Buffy. Sometimes I'm designing Xander, and I'm okay with that. Yeah. Because Xander was freaking hysterical, and he kicks ass. Well, all right, he doesn't kick ass well, but he tries. He kicks ass in the RP section of the pillar of the game. Right. When I look at the Eldritch Knight, it's listed under the fighter, but I kind of consider it a hybrid when I'm imagining the class that I'm playing. And I'm not going to expect to hit as hard as the fighter or cast spells as well as the mage. And I am a little bit more intimidated by the limited action economy now that I've realized, since you presented it, Josh, very well done. Thank you. Um, and I'll put some thought into it, uh, that if I design my character well, I think I can still work with that. Because the bond is a cool thing, but it really is the weapon bond and the summoning them back to your hand. It's a wicked, wicked cool flavor aspect to show that magic merging with the martial. Right. To show your arcane ability bonding with your weapons. It's the Thor ability, right? The right. You throw the hammer, the hammer does its damage, and then you pull it right. back to the hand and you strike a pose. You know, and the one I want to play is an Eldritch Knight that dual wields with the proper feats and fighting style battle axes that I talk a game master into letting me have specially made balanced for throwing with a shorter range because of their weight. And he wouldn't throw them all the time. So the summon back to your hand would only be occasionally. Right. You're fighting melee, but you drop the last guy. That guy's 20 yards away. You throw it then so that my bonus action will still be free for other things. But basically, that made me realize I need to plan the character some more, but it didn't actually take away my enthusiasm. So I ranked it as high as I did because I got so caught up in the imagery and the flavor that could be the Eldritch Knight, the fighter mage, like blended into one blurring tornado of magic and steel. Yeah, that was lame, but whatever. I think that could be really <laughs> cool. <laughs> yeah, so for me, Glenn, I'm right with you on that. Look, I ranked it 10 for flavor. That is my number one flavored subclass out of the fighters. I put it right at the top for flavor. That's how much I respect and love this subclass. And as far as my ability and willingness to play it, I went with seven. And the reason why I went that low on that score is my opportunities to play it would be limited. One, I'm a storyteller. I don't play as often as I'd like. Right. Two, how often does the fighter role or the magic role not get taken in a party? If I'm playing at a small table, one or the other is guaranteed to be taken. 
So if there's only three roles, my chance to play one of those two or a hybrid of those two is exceptionally limited. If I'm playing at a larger table, I still have to make sure some other things are taken care of before I can jump into that utility backup on either end kind of role. And then at that point, it's what level am I playing at? When does this character subclasses abilities come online and become cool? If I'm playing way below that, especially since most of the time I'm playing, it's going to be one shots or smaller, smaller term, not necessarily an ongoing game where I get to build the character for a length. I'm kind of saving it for when I get to play it at the right level. And then I'm going to play it and I'm going to love the heck out of it. All right. So Lee Wanika, I'm going to throw out a really difficult question and you've got 15 seconds to answer, right? You ready? Yeah. Ready? Yeah. I'm giving you two character sheets. One's an Eldritch Knight. One's a Soul Knife. Which one do you pick? Soul Knife. Yeah. That's my point. It's exactly my point. Every time. Absolutely. Right. I don't even think that there's really much of a discussion. Okay. Let's carry on here. So I am going to get next to the subclass that I was honestly most surprised by when I was looking through these. And I think the wildly different, I guess actually they're not that wildly different, are they? Uh, uh, yeah, mine is wildly yeah, different wildly than different. yours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah uh, I, uh, like, like, we're throwing down on this guys, one. Yeah, both of you guys ranked it lower than four. This was my highest ranked subclass. And this was what was originally known as the Banneret and eventually became known as the Purple Dragon Knight uh, that originally appeared in Sword Coast. Let me, you guys start. I think the Banneret slash Purple Dragon Knight has some interesting stuff going for it. I'm going to, I'm going to say though that my overall thing, because they're going to go far, the other two guys are going to go far more into the specifics of how the subclass works and the, uh, the action economy and the way the actual abilities break down. But for me, for the Banneret, what it really came down to is that I felt the Cavalier was lackluster. And I think what the Cavalier is missing is the Banneret. I think that the Cavalier class and the Banneret class should be combined with maybe another option oh. to represent the concept of an order of knights and then different specialties, whether or not you go mounted combat for the Cavalier leadership role for the banneret or perhaps some form of a foot soldier you know what i'm saying i think that would be a better way to go with this subclass and that's why i don't like it i think it's a piece of a subclass that they forgot to throw on another one that they're putting out second and i think that honestly my biggest beef with subclasses is they're coming out because they're getting so much cooler is i think they need to get over their fear of rewriting the php subclasses because it's evident not just in our review, but multiple other reviews and the way that they're releasing their own content that they feel they were lackluster in a lot of cases and they're trying to make them stronger. So let's just rewrite them, guys. Let's just accept it. Put them out, put it out as a free rule update for anybody who wants it. Yep. And let's rewrite it and let's make the banneret and the cavalier and another option something that you could build an order of knights around. That's that's my take. Yeah, so I'm going to jump on the bandwagon with, with Glenn as far as that, but I'm going to give you a little back history on the Purple Dragon Knight and the Banneret. In order that things came out, Sword Coast came out before Xanathar's and the Cavalier. So what you see in the Cavalier isn't just something that should be combined with the, the Banneret. It was Wizard's attempt to redo the Banneret. They basically said, we're not fixing this one. Hey, Here's the baby. There's the bathwater. And we made, and then made the Cavalier. Fair. I was putting the cart before the horse in my original analogy, but yeah. So all of my points are still the same. Absolutely. Uh, And you're right. I thought the Banneret was one that had flavor. And I will add to this. 
I love the Forgotten Realms reading it. Playing in it, slightly different. I'm not the best. That's not my favorite world to play in. I like Homebrew Worlds for a reason. But the part of the Forgotten Realms I love the most is Cormir. It is where the Purple Knight or the Purple Dragons are. Right. I have actually played characters who were offshoots of that particular army. They were squires too or adjuncts too. And I love that concept of that chivalric knight. And I felt that that's what I really wanted. What I found, however, was that there was not nearly enough within this subclass to support what they have in writing. It was a very poor, poor representation of the years of writing of this character type. I think the Cavalier does it better. If they put the purple dragon name, took it off of Banneret and put it on the Cavalier, I would like that class, that subclass, much better. That's very interesting. I think purple dragon should be removed completely. I object to naming a class or a subclass based on a specific order from the Forgotten Realms, specifically because... It's a class, not an order of knights. Yeah. The class should be for a knight. Yep. I, and, and I would agree with that assessment. I think the issue was they were trying to do something that was specifically for the Sword Coast. This is what they were doing at the time. I think their original thought was put out a book in different areas and have different stuff for different areas. And then they realized that most of what they had in that book, as far as that was falling flat. Right. So they repaired, took out what they could, put it in Xanathar's, and started with a whole new concept. I really do think that Wizards, and I don't have any connections there, I don't know this for a fact, I have heard similar commentary from other podcasters other er, uh, and YouTube posters that they really changed course after Skag and switched things up as far as what they were moving forward with. And I think it's evident by what has come out of Skag what has been reprinted, and what has not. All right, so I'm going to go ahead and sing the praises of the Banneret because both of you are wrong. I think that this is mechanically and flavorfully probably the strongest subclass in the fighter class. And it's because from the moment that I started reading its description, from the moment that I started looking through its powers, from the moment that I started looking through its thing, through what it looks like, all that came to mind was one of my absolute favorite characters from Game of Thrones, and that was Sir Barristan Selmy. Probably one of the great, was uh, uh, described by, by Jorah Mormont as the greatest sword fighter in all of Westeros, but also from his mere presence on the field benefited everybody else around him. And if you look through the powers, you, Glenn, you nailed it. I'm going to go ahead and hammer on the, on the mechanics of this character because the mechanics are super strong. The mechanics are all about how can a fighter who does things that fighters do, like second wind, like action surge, like persuasion, how does it take everything that it does and apply it to everybody else around him? I mean, at third level, he gets the ability to go ahead and give second wind to three allies within 60 feet of him. Mm -hmm. Second wind is a D10 worth of hit points per long rest. Right, no, I dig it. that, That you can use as a react, you can do that as a reaction. At third level, 10 hit points. Th- think about your third level wizard and how many hit points they may or may not have at third level. They might only have 15 hit points. Being able to roll a d10 to reclaim them as a wizard keeps that wizard standing up for probably three or four more rounds. Like, And that's the power that the Banneret brings right from the very beginning. 
So, Josh, let me step in here because I think I'm going to have counterpoints along the way. So I want to kind of hit them where you where you where where you put them. And I apologize if this comes across confrontational, but we are talking fighters, are we not? The issue I have with that is I think second wind doesn't scale well anyway. The issue is not if it's a third level power. I don't care if it doesn't scale if it's a third level power. Right, but the that but for a class, I, I think the problem with this subclass is it peters out. Like, I wouldn't play this beyond a certain point. And I think it's a decent power to good at the earlier levels, but I think its ability to scale is done by the time you're out of by the time you're at the back end of second tier. I totally disagree. I mean, think about what, what the Banneret gets at level 18. So if you think it peters out, let's look at his highest highest level ability, right? So it gets the ability to go ahead and grant indomitable to other allies. So not only does it does the does a banneret have indomitable, which is basically an automatic reroll on any saving throw, you can then allow anybody else within 60 feet of you to reroll any saving throw just by the right. fact you're there. And here's so aside from getting a one. How many saving throws do third tier and fourth tier characters actually fail? Saving throws? Tons. Tons. Because you're going to, so, you, so you've got your skill, mod, you've got your skill, mod, not, you've got your uh, your ability modifier plus your proficiency bonus. Proficiency bonus at, at level 18 is what, seven? And so, and if you're playing, again, if you're playing a wizard or, okay, let's say that you are playing, let's say that you are playing a rogue who has to make a constitution save. What's the constitution for that rogue going to be? 12? Maybe? Maybe 10? So you're talking about a constitution saving throw that's at 7? You're failing that constitution saving throw. Uh, if it, it, So, you know, you're, at, you're adding 7. What's your tier 3, tier 4 uh, saving throw is going to be? Uh, your difficulty on those is going to be 15 to 18, depending on, you know, depending on what it is that you're fighting at, in 4th tier. So that means that you're failing that check more than 50% of the time as a rogue. We have said before that the biggest, the, the number one game changer to any ability is the ability to roll more dice to succeed. That's what this power does. Okay, I will concede that if you're picking, if you have a save that is opposite from what a particular class has, that is useful. But what you're illustrating is the fact that that ability at that level is useful if you have this character next to specific other characters who have specific failings versus a common or slightly uncommon event. Yeah, I mean, I don't care about the saving throws I'm going to pass all the time. I care about the saving throws I'm going to fail all the time. I want the ability to roll more dice to not right. fail them. So for me, and, and while I agree with that point, this is a calculation I make when I'm looking at mechanics. How often is it going to be useful? So the question isn't, am I covering that potential loss? But the question is, how often does that loss come up so I need this ability? If it happens once in a game, was that a useful use of that power? Or was it worth the choices I gave up to get that power? So the frequency that the situation comes up in is part of my calculation when it comes to mechanics. I don't think that scenario comes up as frequently as you might think in the later level. See, I think that staying too focused on calculating is part of the yeah. issue. Because if you want to play a baronet and you're loving your command of the battlefield and you feel that you're getting your game's worth out of your abilities, go for it. Have a blast with it. Have fun. 
Every class doesn't have to balance out to every other subclass evenly. They're never going to. That's something we'll be battling on forever. Yeah, true. All right. Man, we've got to move on, but that's okay. I'm going to go ahead and call you out a little bit on this. Which power, I'm going to do this again. You ready? Which power would you prefer? Would you prefer the power to grant any other character within 60 feet of you a bonus, an extra roll on a failed saving throw? Or would you prefer to gain a superiority dice when you roll initiative? I, I prefer to go with the superiority die and get that initiative bonus. Because if I go first, I get the okay. Nova Strike. I get my, my number of attacks for that level. I get to double that, my bonus action, which will likely add to that damage. Mm-hmm. And when that is all said and done and I'm done with that Nova Strike, chances are I'm probably in a better position than getting saved. I actually end the fight before the other action can take care can be taken to create the yep. need for the save. A 15th level battlemaster has five superiority yep. dice and they don't and they don't gain that other superiority dice until they roll initiative again after they've used yep. those five. So, are you taking a short rest or are you using your 15th level power to regain that superiority dice? I will probably take use my power to get the uh to to get that other one. Mm, really? I thought you said before that we would rest. Uh, no, what I said is that's the calculation. You have to look at the situation as far as which you do. <laughs> okay. All right. We're just going to have to agree or disagree on this because I, I think I think that if you're talking about a power that's never going to come up, that power is never going to come up. Oh, I think that power will come up often. I'm waiting for it right now because I just, uh, the last battle we were in, I sped out. Fair enough. <laughs> That will come up often because players don't like to rest and DMs don't like to leave time to rest. So that is a true story, but based on the current way the game is being played, but I still present perhaps to be discussed in a future episode that the game needs to start to shift. Maybe. All right. Uh, So let's, uh, let's, let's move on. I I hope that that, uh, that little bit of contention was as enjoyable for everybody listening as it was for us, because uh, you know, Likely, likely when you can said, we're talking fighters. These are going to get a, l- a little hairy. Let's go into a class that uh, that all of us agreed with a little bit more, uh, a little bit more on, uh, but also very much kind of put it into the the middle of the pack uh, among the fighter subclasses. Um, and this is our first subclass from Xanathar's uh, the the Arcane Archer, another magic wielding subclass, um, very elvish in flavor. Uh, I liked the diversity of the of the specialty maneuvers. I thought it was very similar mechanically to the Battlemaster, the way that it was built, um, and it, it came up with some with some neat things. Um, you know, but again, I placed it uh, a little bit higher than middle of the road, but still still pretty, uh, still very playable, still a, a decent amount of flavor, solid mechanics, but nothing nothing super uh, like glowingly special about it. I rated it as low as I did because I still, I I have to give it, the Arcane Archer used to be like a thing, man. Everybody wanted their GM to let them play the Arcane Archer. It was a prestige class of doom. It was badass. And this is not. So (laughs) the problem is, and the biggest problem with the Arcane Archer is two uses, two uses of the Arcane Shot ability per short rest ever, no matter how big they get. That's way too limiting, way too limiting. I mean, other people get, uh, other classes are getting, I'm, even if you go with someone else that does something similar, look at Warlock spells. They don't get very many, right? They start out with like what? One? Yeah. They get up to like four? Fine. So, you know, at seventh level or eighth level, 
throw him another shot for the love of God. And then this class could be a little bit more of a competitor, in my opinion. That's its only holdup. Aside from that, it's cool. But I do also want to say, how come elves got to get their special taken away so that the arcane archer can now be anybody, but the berserker can still only be a dwarf? What's up with that? Yeah. The only thing that I will say uh, about the the limitation on the, the spell for the arcane archer, I absolutely agree with you. The more that we're doing these, the more I'm kind of learning about, you know, if if this were if this wasn't Dungeons and Dragons, if it was Josh and Lewanika and Glenn, I think we would do things differently. No, I already plan on homebrewing it. My son's playing one and I'm going to add shots. Yeah, well, one of the things that I think I would do is that in general, instead of putting hard caps on things, I would think any bonus related to some, to a, the number of a thing is tied to your proficiency bonus so that it increases as you level. And because the proficiency bonus already scales with your level. every you know, And, and that way, so not only does it kind of give this, this good scaling, but it also removes some of the inconsistency because some of the things are tied to your proficiency bonus and some of them are not. Some of them are half of your proficiency bonus and some of them are like a set number like the Arcane Archers. And so I'm totally with you on that one. I think that that definitely needs to change. Uh, as I look at the Arcane Archer, uh, th- there are about three or four different ways to build an archer who's throwing magic. While it will not do exactly what these arrows do, it gets close enough where that would be good enough and you're going to do more than this one would do. Uh, if I could somehow figure out a mechanism to mix it with the Ranger and the Hordebreaker feature, that would be the only way this really knocks itself out of the park. And then that requires a dual class, and I'm not even 100% sure those two features could work together. That would be, that. that's kind of my, like, I'm not sure how to make this work other than doing things like you're talking about with scaling and making fixes. When we go into how to fix a subclass, this is one I think we're going to do because I think we all agree that we love what it's supposed to be, but it falls flat of wanting to play it for the most part because of those failings. Two shots is not enough. When they were taking its super cool complexity from its previous incarnation and boiling it down to, you know, 5e simplicity, they left it on the back burner for too long and boiled it away to nothing. For my money, if you really want to do it, you take the spell True Strike. Except that's an action And you make it a... Right, listen. You take the spell True Strike, you make it a feature that they get to use as many times as they have a proficiency bonus oh, and, and then you stick it as their action? third level ability. And now I'm playing this class every day because that, th- yep. that, that alone, All right. now you're putting your magic on every shot, no matter what it is. You just happen to have two more that are extra special. You have that and that scaling and this is out of the park. All right. So preview for the episode that we're going or the, the, uh, the module that we're going to put out about how to fix your fighters uh, uh, when we start talking about how to some tweaks that you can make to these subclasses to make them uh, to make them a little bit more balanced, but I think that that's a fantastic idea. I think that True Strike is one of those things that uh, in <laughs> True Strike really used to be so much better, and it's just not anymore. And we all yeah, just wish that it was too. better. Yeah, it really did. I'm seriously considering a table rule where it's a bon- it's casting time as a bonus action because that's bonus the only act. way the spell would ever be Absolutely. useful again. Yep. While we try to stay to five minutes apiece, we are woefully over that for all of the subclasses that we have already talked about. So uh, this is going to be a two-part episode. We're going to stop here for now. We have already gone through four of the uh, one, two, we should get one three, more in. We four. should do five. We've done, we've done five. We've done five. 
Champion, Battlemaster, Eldritch Knight, the Banneret, and the Arcane Archer. We've done the first five. And in those first five, when we publish the uh, uh, the ratings, you're going to notice we've already talked about the second and third place ranked subclass already. So number one is still out there. We haven't got to it yet. L- any any last words on these first five subclasses uh, before we close for tonight? I think that uh, we went back and forth, uh, the three of us, uh, though mostly Josh and me on one of them. Uh, uh, quite a bit, but I think that really showcases our love for the fighter class and our love for this game. These are little picayune white room theory crafting kind of uh, arguments. They're quibbles. quibbles. They are not <laughs> uh, huge problems at the game table. The things we like to play, we like to play, and we play them at the tables. And, and like I said about the one that I uh, out of all of these, I ranked the lowest. I still want to play it. And I want to play it more than some of the other ones just because I'm evaluate. We are all evaluating our take on the mechanics and how they work at the table. That's our play style with these mechanics, or that is the average play style with these mechanics that has nothing to do with whether or not this works. If you're role playing a character role, play that character, the mechanics they're going to follow, they're going to do what they're going to do, but you'll still have fun playing any of these characters, all of these character subclasses. Absolutely. I agree. I mean, I could walk up to, a table and be handed a pre-gen of any of these classes we've just discussed and have an amazing time playing it. All of them are worth playing. They're a good time. Whether or not they're the ones that are specifically speaking to my imagination right now, on the other hand, are different. But wait six months and I might be eyeballing that champion going, oh, the beefcake fighter could be fun. I'll play the stereotypical trope, but then I'll twist it. You know, so it's all about what you do at the table. Um, you pick what you're feeling, what your imagination is connecting you to. Don't min-max your character and try to just make the guy who hits the hardest. You know, work on work on your character's story and make him cool. You may not be the guy who does the most damage, but make sure that you always look badass doing it, whatever you do. Absolutely. <laughs> yep, absolutely. All right, we will, uh, so we're going to end part one here. We will pick up with part two next week. Thank you all for listening. We'll talk to you then. Welcome back to our episode on, or episodes, on the fighter subclasses. Last time we met, we got through the first five. We got all the way through the Arcane Archer. But as that episode uh, highlighted, the three of us are uh, some opinionated folk. Round two. Ding, ding. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> we, have a, we have a lot to say about this class. And, and uh, I think that the way that Leo and Ika ended last episode was perfect when he was saying that the reason why we have so much to say about it is because of how much we love this class and how much we really want this class to work and how we really think that there are there are some opportunities here to go ahead and make them better and to really make them the fabulous fighter characters that we all remembered uh, from when from when we were kids. I very rarely want to play a fighter because a lot of times I want to play something with a little bit more nuance and a little bit more more kitsch to it. But when I do, the fact that there are so, there's so much diversity within these now, um, I can tell you that I, I would love 
love to go ahead and play play the majority of them. So that so that's great. So we're, we're going to start tonight. Uh, we're going to continue with the subclasses that are featured in Xanathar's. We're going to start tonight with the Cavalier class. Um, and again, I think that this was one that the three of us ranked pretty similarly and at the lower end of the spectrum. So uh, Glenn and I both ranked them uh, sub four out of 10. Uh, Liwaniku, you put it a little bit over four. So that's kind of the area that we're talking about here. The thing that this subclass didn't do for me you know, it's funny, Glenn, when you were talking about using the Cavalier in combination with the Banneret and everything like that, it made me doubt myself for just a minute about whether or not I had given this class a fair shake or not. The more that I think about it, though, I I have settled in that my conclusion my conclusions are, are, are fine um, because I really feel like this is a class that from a flavor point of view wants to be something but the powers that they gave it don't match what they want the class to be the cavalier is a mounted combat hero or should be doesn't get any mounted combat power it's exactly it my gets notes one too. At third level it gets one at 15th level and ev- nothing else and so it's like it's one of those things it's like okay I hear what you're trying to do but that's not what you wrote <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> you know in my notes, what I have is that for the class where in the very first line of its description, it says, and I quote, excels at mounted combat, only born does to the saddle and ferocious charger are flavored for mounted combat at all. You know, and, and not just that, but it's, and again, I know we don't want to ham- hammer on the mechanics too heavily, but it's 18th level power sucks out loud. <laughs> so it allows you to go ahead and take an extra attack of opportunity as a reaction, fine, but only on a round where you don't take where you don't take a normal reaction. So you're not actually getting any, the power doesn't actually do anything. You can use it, you can take an attack of opportunity as a reaction anytime. That's, that is rules. That, that's, that is combat rule in Dungeons and Dragons. You can take an attack of opportunity as a reaction. And so this saying that you can take an additional attack of opportunity unless you've already used your reaction, I guess the only case would be is that if you use your reaction for something else, then you don't lose your attack of opportunity. The way I read it was you get two attacks of opportunity, but if you've already used a reaction, so you couldn't take an attack of opportunity anyway, nah, nah. Yeah. Right. That's what they're trying to say is that you get an additional one, but you're right. If you've already used your reaction as an attack of opportunity, you don't get the second one. Right. Mechanically weak. So I looked at this and I hear your your statement that it is lacking in flavor. And I took what Glenn said in the last episode and uh, the last section when we were talking about the banneret. And I think that's absolutely correct. And then I was thinking about what I said about the banneret, that if you combine these two, the flavor of the banneret and the powers of this, you get a much better subclass. You get a much better fighter. Yeah. They tried to make two knights in shining armor and they should have just made one. I mean, I rank the flavor second from the bottom. Arguably, could be the bottom. Like, it was a toss-up. Whereas, I ranked its powers kind of middle of the road. And the reason is, that 18th level one, weak sauce. But I have previously stated that I don't care that much about the highest level abilities because of the infrequency of actually having characters play to that level. Sure, that that's fair. Uh, it wasn't the heaviest thing that I thought of. You know, I thought that there were things that were good that I like Unwavering Mark. Yep. We spoke in a in a previous episode about why does everything have to be Hex? Why couldn't you call it something else? Since it does something slightly different or has a different mechanic. This is a way to make that difference. You know, I, I think, you know, Hunter's Mark, Unwavering Mark, uh, they are different enough phrases that you can tell they're different things. And I like that ability. Some of the maneuvers work, I think, fairly well. I just think that it doesn't quite 
do it. Later, when we're talking about how to fix your fighter, we may propose some form of a fighter subclass that combines them a little bit into something like an ordered knight or a knight of the order or an an order. And you could have different options underneath it. Yep. We could build in some more mounted abilities that scale fairly well. And so if you're building a knight of the order who's more mounted, you can choose those abilities or what have you. And I think that there's, there's a lot of room to get that to happen. But talking about the class as written, this is pretty weak sauce in, in comparison to the other fighter subclasses. Isn't isn't it isn't that nice? See, sometimes folks, we can agree on things. It really it does happen from time to time. It's not going to happen here. <laughs> I'm gonna. This might be the subclass ranking that gets me thrown off this podcast. I'm just going to toss that out there. Uh, the next one that we're going to talk about is from Xanathar's. It is the last of the Xanathar's subclasses. And it's the samurai. The samurai. Oh, the samurai. Look, okay, I'm just going to come out and be straight. The samurai makes my heart sad. The samurai suffers from a problem that is not the samurai's fault, I think. It's that Dungeons and Dragons as a game does not do martial arts combat well. Mm. And therefore, the samurai has a limited toolbox with which to do the things that a samurai would need to do to be effective. For, I think, the first time in any of these subclass rankings, and we've probably done, what, 50 50 subclasses or something at this point, uh, I think this is the first one that I have ranked a one across the board in all four categories. I think that it is mechanically awful. I think that that, uh, its flavor is not realized because of the nature of the game of Dungeons & Dragons. I do not want to play it. And I had no desire to give it any sort of wild card points to raise it. It is a one. It is a pure one. There is no redeeming this subclass. I would agree. Subclass as written is crap. I'm not going to throw you off the podcast for this ranking. I ranked its flavor at a one. I ranked its mechanics at a three. That said, very similar to some of the other ones we've spoken about, I still want to play this character class. It speaks to what a samurai is and how much I like it. But it suffers from a problem that is not this subclass's fault, like Josh said. For me, what it really suffers from is the challenge of doing a send-up of a cultural icon without appropriation or stereotyping. I think that's where why it's so weak. I think there was an honest-to-goodness fear of being tokenistic or being a stereotype and offending so much so that they ended up cutting anything that dealt with the culture out of it, which is why it has no flavor because there's a fear about that. And, and I truly feel that was an editorial decision. I can't say I disagree with it because I would also struggle. Like when we talk about how to fix things, I don't know how to fix this without questioning whether or not I'm a, either stereotyping or appropriating. Let's be honest, the samurai as done in Dungeons and Dragons for the history of this game was based on Kurosawa type films. In and of itself, a caricature of a very powerful social construct within a culture. Because of where this idea, this germ of an idea comes from, is problematic in that way, it makes it impossible to do it differently. So I think it's less about they can't do martial arts. And more about how the heck do we get ancient or semi-ancient oriental culture into this game without being wrong-headed about it. 
I don't know if I have that answer. I don't even know if I'm qualified to have that answer. I've listened to podcasts from various folks who can speak much more eloquently about the Asian experience and how to show Asian characters within the game. I don't even know if they have that right answer. Is the answer that only an Asian can play an Asian character? I don't think that's the answer. But I wonder about how that gets done without being wrong. So I think that's the problem with the class. You're, you're not wrong at all. And I, I agree. The The samurai is awesome. I mean, I ranked it a 10 for flavor. I mean, I couldn't help but rank it a 10 for flavor because it's that flavor is granted by countless legends, novels, films. Wizard of the Coast doesn't get credit for any of that. But that's the problem. They can't make the samurai without all of that flavor that they that they can't have. Yeah. You know, the samurai is a real was a real figure that was also fictionalized and, and, you know, and set up as well. But it comes from an actual culture. You could create a samurai like class from a race in D&D if you put the culture behind it. But you're not wrong. All comparisons and lines would be drawn. So how could you possibly even if you were being as right headed as possible, how could you possibly do that without offending someone? in terms of the way that you interpreted it. So I love the samurai, but I honestly think it's a class, a subclass that D&D needs to just let go. I don't think they'll ever be able to properly incorporate it. I think they need to cut the strings. I think when they did the Carter setting in second edition, for as good as they could at the time, because they were showing multiple fighters, multiple wizards, multiple things, because it was an entire setting set in an oriental style culture, they had the Horde lands. They had Mongol-type characters. They had every facet. They had Chinese-styled characters. They had Japanese-styled characters. They had South China Sea-styled characters, not as well with that end of things as possible. They had all these different cultural areas that they were drawing from, and they allowed each of them to have a class or something like that, that it worked. I don't think you can do the samurai unless you're doing a setting. So then the samurai becomes one among many. So it can be its thing, right. but you're not saying this is the only Asian styled character within the scope of the game. Right. But they'd also, again, right-headed or wrong-headed, have a hard time launching into a setting based on the stereotypes of Asian culture that were used to create what they did in second Absolutely. edition. That just trying to attack that kind of an egg, crack that kind of a nut, is just, I don't think that's something that d and is going to get into. I don't think they are. I know that there are Kickstarters and other games from other people in the world that are putting out content that is very culturally specific. And it tends to be, at least the stuff that I'm hearing about as being good, tends to be from people from that culture. There's a uh, German citizen who was on a podcast I was listening to. He is making a game, a tabletop game, 5e uh, compatible, that is based on African cultures, the uh, multiple African cultures. And there are many. I've seen that. It's, it, it looks and gorgeous. And it looks fantastic. Yeah. Nobody else is going to be able to do that. I am an American, even though my family is from Africa. I'm not even going to be able to do that because I don't have my thumb on the pulse of that heritage as much as I should or could. But I'm actually looking forward to seeing more of that game and hearing more from that creator. I listened to him on a panel and thought he was a brilliant ambassador of those types of things. So at the end of the day, I think it is possible. 
but I think it's going to have to come from the gamers in that culture who are making that right. product. It's not going to come from Wizards of the Coast. And that's the only way we have a shot at getting something that works, something that feels right, and that is not uh, offensive. And, and and I don't think anybody else, myself, chief among them, is really qualified to talk on what that needs to look like. I can't do that. Right. No, not at all. Even beyond that, I think that in 2021, with the amount of options that we as role players have to play a game, to play one game or another game, when there is a game like Wushu, which is designed to be a Kurosawa-style martial arts-driven combat, why play a samurai in Dungeons & Dragons, which is a system which is going to actively fight against the actions that a samurai character wants to take. The system, the mechanics actively fight against doing those sorts of things. And there is a game system out there which is really approachable, really available, really affordable, really well-written, and does exactly the thing you want. Like, putting this class in, I mean, I, honestly, I think it was a mistake. I don't think that they should have included the subclass. They should have cut bait with it. I agree. Let it go. I, I think somewhere along the lines, they should have said, look, this one isn't going to work. What, what was plan B? But I get the fact that what they were trying to do. Look, Forgotten Realms has... On the back end of it, at least it did. Nobody's been dealing with it for three for three editions now. The Asian culture, the 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 steps. So it's there. It's in the world. It has not been cut off of current games. They're just not doing anything to support it right now. And with that in mind, I agree. It was probably something that should have been dropped. There's a reason why it has never been reprinted. It's probably, I think, a glaring example of one of the few things that absolutely doesn't work out of Xanathar's, which otherwise is an excellent and exquisite book. It's an excellent book, yeah. I did want to say one thing, though. I ranked it higher for wanting to play it because I think on some level, if I was playing a rabbit folk, I might be able to get an Usagi Yojimbo that came out somewhat close to that show uh, or that comic. <laughs> I think I could probably do, if it was a really small size campaign, get something very close to Lone Wolf and Cub. I think I could do something very small like that. If it was less focused on the combat and more focused on the RP, I could probably make a samurai work. Let us soldier on. <laughs> no pun intended. See, so I did there. We're going to talk about uh, a book that we actually haven't talked about uh, on any of our subclass episodes yet. We're going to talk about our first subclass from the Explorer's Guide to Wildmount, which I will be honest, when when uh, I think Glenn and I both said the same thing, when we looked at the uh, at the sheet, Liwanika very kindly put together the spreadsheet that we use to kind of do all the, uh, all the math and everything that we have here, and he put the abbreviation EGTW. <laughs> Glenn and I both looked at each other uh, and were like, what the f***? GTW. What book is that? I'm, like, I'm looking through my book. I'm like, it's not, it's not Theros. It's not what. What book is that? It's the Explorer's Guide to Wild Mount. But we're going to talk about the only subclass for the fighter in that book, and that's the Echo Knight. All of us ranked the Echo Knight fairly high, with qualifications. Yeah, yeah. We're going to get into those in just a second. But yeah, I, I, I actually ranked this. This was tied uh, at, as a, as as Lee Wanika uh, said earlier. Uh, this was uh, how flawed my thinking was in this process. Uh, this was actually tied for first with the Banneret. Those are the two subclasses that I thought were the best out of all ten of these. Um, and so uh, we're going to get into 
quite possibly how flawed my thinking was here. But um, here's the deal. The Echo Knight... It is a mechanical monster. It is, there are virtually no limitations to any of the, the characteristics, the, the maneuvers, the abilities of this subclass. You know, I mean, even just look at, if you look at Manifest Echo, right? Which is basically Mirror Image, which is another, which is an Eldritch Knight ability, but it's Mirror Image and other stuff. For free. Just a bonus action. Yeah, for free. Exactly. It's a bonus action. Right. No limit. Make 40 of them in a day if people keep killing them. Yeah, there's a limit, though. You can just do it. It's fine, you know? Well, okay, yeah, if you kill the... Yeah, that's true. If you kill the Echo Knight, he can't do it anymore. That's true. But, you know, but that's... What other limit are you seeing? I see the limit in the power of the Echoes, right? And I agree with you. There are no governors on this thing. But it is very similar to the problem I had with the Arcane Archer. My problem with the Arcane Archer is you're talking about a character whose name is Arcane Archer but he cannot arcane archer often enough. Everything he does should allow him to arcane archer. The Echo Knight solved that problem, but it did it by making the Echo weak. These things get hit often. They get hit easily. Their AC is going to be less than the actual main character who's casting them generally. And because they only have one hit point, they're going away as fast as you can make them. So effectively, especially when you take into account weapon choices, you're still taking a bonus action to put something up, and it's not like it's always going to be there or the the main character is never going to be hit. It's not doing damage itself. It's actually less effective than a a Forge Cleric with the shield spell. And, And so I think... The built-in limit is the power of the thing it's doing, even though it's doing the thing as often as you would like. I got to wholeheartedly disagree. Yeah. I mean, I got to jump right in on that. I mean, for the love of monkeys, man, the Echo, all right, the physical manifestation of the Echo is weak. That's a true story. Fine. You can whack it down with one hit. I don't care. Next round, guess what I can do with this bonus action? Boop, it's right there beside you again. Didn't do you any good, did it? And how many enemies, unless they're familiar with it, are going to attack it? Because it doesn't pose a threat on its own. It just stands there. But what it does do, what it does do at third level is it gives you two zones of control up to 30 feet apart on the battlefield for attacks of opportunity. Almost any of the abilities that you have can cross that boundary, right? And I don't remember because I don't have the stats in front of me because I don't own Explorer's Guide to Wild Mont, so I had to look this all, all of this up. If it comes in later or not, or if it starts at third level, but you get the ability to teleport, switch places with your Echo. So now you oh, have yeah. an unlimited thirty foot yeah. teleport. You, you can switch. You can switch back and forth between your Echo. Yeah, and your Echo moves. Yep, it does take a reaction to do that, if I recall correctly. So the. Okay. All right, fine. <laughs> with a bonus action and a reaction, I so, just became unlimitedly mobile. Yeah. Okay. With right. two so, zones of control on the battlefield. Right, but here's the limiting factor. You said it was unlimited. If you move it, you then cannot use it as a zone of control in that same round. So you are making a calculated tactical choice. Am I going to, should I keep it still so I can use an attack of opportunity as a reaction? Or, and if I do, then I lose my own because you have to use yours. 
That's not a limit. That's just choosing which power you're going to use that round, Lee. It, it, there's no game limit. There's no stop to your ability to do it. If you stood in one spot and just kept popping them up, I could keep whacking your echoes all day long at six second rounds if I killed them in one shot. I mean, how many of them could we kill in a day before you? nothing happens to you? There's no limit. But here's the deal. With a Battlemaster, I can do the same thing I, I with the exception of the distance piece. So you are adding the distance piece, and that doesn't come on, online until At later. At third level? At third level, if I choose the right uh, maneuver, uh, I can add a D8 to my attack of opportunity. This isn't about choosing the right maneuver. This is their base ability. Right. And that... It's crazy overbalanced, but which man. maneuvers are for the battle? It's crazy overbalanced. We're gonna we're gonna have to agree to disagree because you ain't seeing straight if you see that as possibly balanced. I I I would happily trot out my swashbuckler to fight next to an Echo Knight who can teleport who can teleport himself thirty feet away, impose disadvantage on the enemy that he's facing. Let my swashbuckler come up and and uh, and sneak attack for however much damage I'm going to be able to do and then have him blip back to his regular position and I'll just fight with his shadow. Like, yes, please. Every day of the week and twice on Sunday. So with a battle master, I can impose, uh, I can choose commander strike and give you advantage at, at, uh, at 30 feet also, as long as I choose that feature. Yes, but. And give you an extra D eight. Right. But if I'm not with your echo Knight, I worry about getting hit, which is the weakest part of a swashbuckle. If I'm a swashbuckler and I'm getting hit, bad things happen. If your Echo Knight is there, I don't have to worry about that. Right. Now, your swashbuckler has two different zones of constant sneak attack. They do it's, anyway, it's, though. It's hugely powerful. I mean, you can just blip over and take your action on the other side. Uh, I am not saying it's not powerful. It is powerful. It is among the most powerful. What I am saying is it is not broken. I don't think it outweighs other things that can be done at similar levels. If you find me another class that feels as strong as that does to me, I'm going to say it's broken and needs to be fixed too. <laughs> yeah, I think it's stronger than the Battlemaster. I absolutely do. And maybe and maybe it's maybe it's because the maneuvers pose so much diversity. It's like you said. The maneuvers pose so much diversity, you really have to think about what it is that you're taking and what it affords you. Right. And so a yeah. given build of a Battlemaster is as strong as an Echo Knight. Yes. But it takes knowing and manipulating, not manipulating the rules, but knowing the rules and ushering your path through the rules to get there versus the Echo Knight, which is just basically like, yep, here you go. But I love it. Love it, flavor-wise. Oh, oh, absolutely. I mean, I call it the time knight, the, the time yeah. knight, because of these echoes oh, of time. I think yeah. it's, yeah. I think flavor-wise, it's amazing. And if one of you guys want to let me play it, I would love. Oh, I'm, I, I, I'm on, I'm on record. I want to play this. But as a DM, I think they're broken. I think this is too powerful. I think the issue is you do have to. Uh, worry about something with a Battlemaster that you don't have to worry about with this. With a Battlemaster, you have to pick the weapon and the fighting style to match the types of maneuvers or pick the maneuvers that match the weapon and fighting style you use. With the Echo Knight, that is less of a consideration and much more forgiving. In that regard, it has additional power than the Battlemaster, and I will grant you. But I do know using reach weapons with uh, Battlemaster and maneuvers... I think it's pretty close. Let's let's move out of that accursed book that nobody has and go into the uh, the two fighter subclasses. That's not fair. I'm sure that there are people that own 
the Explorer's Guide to Wildmount, uh, even though we had no idea what the heck the abbreviation can, can was. I, can I just that. say one thing to all of our fans that watch Critical Role? What Josh just said is not the group opinion. <laughs> no, it's not. No, no, it is not. I will say this, and it's what I put in my notes. I actually want to read from my notes, which I try not to do, but I'm going to do this. While I've yet to make a deep dive into the mysteries of of the Dunamis or the Dunamancy, as a whole, I'm intrigued by the subclass. subclass. Mm-hmm. And the world. While the, it is a powerful subclass, it is not truly game breaking like the battle master there are a lot of positioning and resource management options this may not be the best class for novice player and i say this from the bottom of my heart très cool mon ami mercer let's move on to the two fighter subclasses uh that were featured in tasha's cauldron of everything um and i, I like this uh I, I like how this podcast has gone tonight because I've sort of led the conversation for each one. So I can say whatever wild conspiracy theory I'm feeling at the time. Uh, and I'm automatically going to sound right. So we're going to start with the side warrior. Anybody that has listened to me talk about Tasha's anybody that has listened to me talk about any of the other subclasses. know I have mad love for psionics. I love psionics. I was really disappointed in this subclass. I felt that it was stronger than the Eldritch Knight early, but that that really teetered off as the subclass progressed. I thought that similar to the Samurai and some other subclasses, which had mechanical flaws, it was based in a attribute which is not what a fighter's primary attribute is going to be, or even a secondary attribute. like. It's got kind of the same problem that the Arcane Archer and the Eldritch Knight have. Playing a fighter where intelligence or wisdom needs to be really high poses problems if you're playing a fighter. And I also thought that the way that the powers for this particular subclass utilized the psionic dice were really underutilized because really they weren't psionic dice, right? They were really just counters that allowed you to trigger psionic abilities. There was only one of the psionic abilities that actually made you roll that psionic dice to to add. And I think it was, it was the, I don't even remember which one it was off the top of my head, but all the other ones basically said, if you have a psionic die, you can use this. And so it's basically just a counter at that point. I feel like that was an interesting choice compared to to other psionic subclasses. I mean, the 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 soul knife that we saw. I mean, it it used its uh, uh its psionic powers really really effectively. Something that we've seen in Tasha's was that the subclasses that were in Tasha's were mechanically superior to other subclasses. That was just that's just a fact. Um, they were certainly mechanically more powerful than other subclasses, and the ca- the subclasses in general were better written than they were in. Or, like we talked about the player's handbook, about how basically the player's handbook subclasses need to be rewritten to kind of bring them up to the standard that we saw in Tasha's. The Psy Warrior, I think, fell flat on all of those things that we had seen in Tasha's, and was a big disappointment. I hear what you're saying, and while it fell a bit less for me in many of those areas that you said it fell flat. I don't think it quite reduced itself to the level of being flat. It came down very strongly for me as something I want to play. It came down as uh, something that I thought had interesting mechanics. I guess I am intrigued to play it because I'm not sure 
I think there's something about it mechanically, and I see what you're saying, but I think it will play better than it reads, or I'm completely wrong, and it will play worse than it reads. Yeah. So I will freely admit, I don't think where I place it is where it will end up being. It's either going to be a little bit higher or a lot worse. Like, I don't think it can be a little bit worse than I said. It's either going to drop to the level that you said, or it's going to be just a little bit higher and really start to push out some of the other things that I was really uh, anxious to work on. It's something that I think I have to play through. I'll be honest with you. Before I played a Battlemaster, I kind of was in that same place with the Battlemaster. Like, wow, a little complex, a lot to kind of keep track of. How cool will it actually be? Once I started playing one and I started realize, realizing what I could do on the battlefield, what I could do to support my uh, my fellow party members, what I could do to augment myself, I really started liking it. And you're right. The challenge is the divided loyalties that you have when you're trying to assign your, your points. Tosh just fixes that in and of itself to some extent. And I didn't say that in the other one because I thought the other one was way too difficult. But I would say... If you're playing the right lineage or you choose the right lineage options, assigning your dice, you can make this playable. I don't think you have to go as strong on the constitution end as you do for the other build. I think with this one, you can be middle of the road with constitution, maybe not even have a big bonus there as long as your intelligence is up a bit higher here. I think it handles that problem a little bit better. So see, for me, the... The Psy Warrior, I was all excited. I was like, the last time we talked about a psionics character, I was all down on psionics and D&D. <laughs> and uh, like, I totally ranted about it for a hot minute. So, and I promised y'all I would give it a second chance. So I tried really hard to read it with an open mind and find good things about it. And then betrayal, the psionics guy's like, I hate it. <laughs> Here I am trying to, you know, butter Only up to him. him. Only one so, of them, yes. Sorry for doing you dirty. No worries, bro. Um, I do sit more in Lee's camp on this one with the the fact that it it's got enough there. I could play it and I could have fun with it. Um, when I was looking at this one, I really just kind of started comparing it to a Cyber Knight from Rifts to try to help myself get behind it a little bit, you know, for the kind of psionic combat person. Totally different in the end, but it kind of helped me out. But I think it could be a lot of fun to play. I do, again, agree. Same thing we made a comment on about the Arcane Archer. When you start bringing Intellect in for a warrior, you're giving him too many stats to have to worry about, and that is tough. But when you're talking about Psionics, what other stat could you really base it on? Maybe Wisdom? That comes from the brain, too. But it's still not exactly... Charisma? But None yeah. of those are strong fighter stats. It's still, you know, he's the guy who needs those physicals. Exactly. You're dealing with the three stats that a fighter is not going to have. Right. A fighter is going to have strength, dexterity, and constitution, constitution, probably in that order. Yeah. When you want to mix in the magic for a fighter, you're going to have to give something up somewhere. So again, I don't think he'll ever be Buffy, but he might be a solid Xander on the side. Or I could come up with a better analogy than that because Xander doesn't really fight much. But whatever. I love Buffy. Get over it. He could be a lot of fun. And the dice don't get as crazy. You're right. But I like the way that they set it up in this one. And I think it speaks directly to the fighter and what the dice should be for. I think unless it's impacting damage, if you're going to look at dice that big, that's my big beef with the Battlemaster is putting a D12 on a skill roll or an attack roll on top of all of his other bonuses. All right. <laughs> that's a big die for, for a skill check or uh, a, a hit check but they're just applying it to damage. And yeah, you've got all of the other abilities that flavor give you the, the psionic the, the psionic characteristics 
and the flavor that you're looking for. But the two main abilities that you're using as a fighter are protective field and psionic strike. And those are the ones you roll your damage for. And that's all about adding damage to a strike or putting up a field and you can also defend even an ally and reduce damage. Aside from that, I think that if the die is going to be that big, it should be a counter as opposed to something that gets rolled. Because unless it's about damage, it shouldn't be that big a die. If we're going to make the dice be about other types of skills besides damage, it needs to stay at the D4, D6, not go up. Yeah, see, I disagree because I think the level of challenges uh, scale so highly when you get into Tier 3 and Tier 4 that having a D4 added to anything that you're doing is, is, is not useful. It just doesn't do enough. And honestly, D8 sounds big, but the average roll is 4. So... If you're rolling it to hit and you're trying to hit things that have ACs around 20 or 25 and you're adding four, is it really that much more significant than two? Well, let's look at it when it gets to 12, where by that point, right. your proficiency bonus gives you already plus what to hit? Six. If, it, if right. you're on a proficiency bonus of six, you're rolling a D12. Yeah. So you're basically saying on a limited resource, so a limited amount of times in a Given short rest, uh, you get to double that. So you get to roll a 12 a couple times. And that's that's on the average. Keeping in mind that fighter damage doesn't scale as much as their two hits and ability that's to hit scale. Yeah. So you got to understand if like uh, the battle master I play, he's still rolling with his best weapon. I'm only rolling a D10 or a D12, even if I'm rolling a D12. So even if I get that one extra hit, it's still going to be magic weapon. I add a plus three. I get to add my strength with all my bonuses. I'm going to get about 20 and I get to hit that well four times in a, in a section of time is four of my twenties anywhere near the scale of a fireball upcast at the same level. Not even close. Right. That's where I say it's not as game breaking as you think because the damage doesn't scale. You have to scale your to hit or in the case of the battle master and similarly here, if you scale your damage, your to hit remains the same. It's that choice. And I think that's why it's not broken. To be clear, I don't think that it's broken. I think that they overcomplicated it. The only right. thing that I thought is broken is I think the Echo Knight goes too far. The superiority die for the battle master isn't the only rolled die that we're talking about either. Um, there are other abilities and other subclasses that offer die rolls and most of them don't go up to a d12 either my, my issue with it is not that i think it breaks the game it's that they overcomplicated the battle master and that attack rolls and damage dice are different enough math formulas that adding the same die roll without making any connotation or difference i don't think it makes sense i think it's apples and oranges now, do I see an easy fix for that beyond some rewrite on the way the ability works? No, I'm, I, I'm sure there are things that can be done. I'm not trying to say that it needs to be re rewritten, though. I just think they overcomplicated it in that one instance and in that those two numbers aren't the same number. They're not the same type of number. Let's carry on and go to our our last subclass, you know, after a 15 minute discussion on the Psy Warrior. <laughs> our bad. Let's no. Nope, hey, that's fine. That, that's why we did this as a second episode, right? Yeah. So we can go ahead and have some. So we give ourselves some space to go ahead and ha hammer this out. Yeah. Let's definitely. talk about the rune knight and and the rune knight. 
I was less disappointed by the Rune Knight. Although I also felt like it was not it was not up to the other subclasses that we saw in Tasha's for other for other classes outside of Fighter. I thought that the Rune Knight was flavorfully and and uh and and from an interesting character point of view, wonderful. In terms of my desire to play this character, this was the one that I ranked a 10 out of 10 that I want to play it. I thought that it's it just seems really interesting to play. That said, I think that its mechanics are are pretty weak sauce at the end of the day. And I think that it's it you can look at its mechanics in in two ways that kind of illustrate what the issue is here. The first one is that kind of like the Psy Warrior, early, it's great. Tier one into tier two, the Rune Knight's gonna be awesome. After tier two, it doesn't really have much. Mm-hmm. It doesn't get much after that. Think about at 10th level, the Rune Knight gets to get a little taller and do an additional D8 worth of damage. That's its, that's its power. Its power is it gets to turn into Glenn. And who wants that? I mean, that's, you know. There's enough of me already. <laughs> I, th- I think we've previously mentioned on the podcast that Glenn is exceptionally tall. So. I'm not that tall. I just look that way to you two short Samuel L. Jacksons. Yeah. I, I think Lee Wanika and I are five foot four between the two of us, and Glenn's about six foot twelve. So it's yeah. I, I don't get to five foot four. I'm five two and, <laughs> and some amount of halfling change. Yeah. So 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 that so that's the first thing is that good early, but the powers kind of drop off after a while. The second thing is that if you look at the uh, the progression for giant strength, which is which is the ability, it's kind of the hallmark ability of the Rune Knight. The progression for giant strength does not scale in the same way that other powers that scale in that way, it, it has a different scale. So for example, instead of having a D12 to add to your to giant strength, you only have a D10 at level 18. And so you're one dice category behind in any of your scaling. And I just, it's those kind of things that make me look at it and go, uh, okay, well, why are you, why are you limiting the thing that I want to use? Like, why, why are you actually doing that? What sense does it make? And I don't think that the difference between a D10 and a D12 is going to be that game breaking that it is worth taking an 18th level ability and just making it a little bit worse than it needs to be. And those are the two things. So it really brought down its mechanics. That said, I think the Rune Knights are freaking awesome. I would love to go ahead and play one. I think it could be a lot of fun, too. No, I was going to say, there's a build somewhere in the universe that is screaming for me to play a Rune Knight. I don't know exactly what it is, and it's why I ranked that, you know, 7 out of 10. It was kind of like, I'm feeling it, but there's something about it that's holding me back or something that's just not making it special. I'm not really sure, but I agree with uh, what you said, Josh. The, the mechanics were pretty weak sauce. Uh, as I said, I kind of just went through and just positioned. Do I like it more or less than other mechanics? And it ended up a four out of t- uh, uh, out of out of ten. You know, it was like it really wasn't all that. You know, and its flavor, while it was there, and I think it was kind of cool, ended up halfway. It was five. I gave it a ten for a wild card because there's something about it that makes me want to like it more. Yeah. And I have no idea what that is. And I think that's why we build in the wild card. You know, I don't know what, what it's missing. And I think maybe the answer is I need to play it to find out. And maybe that is something we should all take away from these rankings, our rankings, anybody's rankings is if you see something and you're not sure, play it, yep. play it, 
play it well, play it to the best of your ability, work it for as many games and sessions as you possibly can, as long as you're having fun. And at the end of that, you'll know what it's missing. And that may give you an idea of what to homebrew, how to homebrew, or why you're never picking it up again. So I'm going to hashtag spoiler alert just a second before, before Glenn, you dive in. Um, uh, my idea about the barbarian class is that barbarian should not be a class, it should be a lineage, and that there should be a whole series of of classes that are specific to the to the 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 Norse Viking barbarian lineage, right? Mm-hmm. This is one of them. This is the rune knight is not a fighter class. It should be closer to the barbarian. Um, and I think that is the mechanical shift that I am feeling with this. This does not feel like a fighter to me. This feels like a like a when you look at about its 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 uh, its giant lineage, all those sorts of things, it seems to me like something that would be better suited to a barbarian lineage um as opposed to kind of a fighter and Goliaths. Yes. Right? I love Goliaths by the way. Yeah. I have since they yep. first came out in 3rd edition yeah. and I absolutely love them in 5th yeah. edition. That said, I'm having a real hard time picturing a half elf rune knight. <laughs> What's funny is you're correct. Line. That's actually the character when I said there's a build somewhere, it was going to be a halfling or a gnome. Now, a lizard man rune knight? Oh yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm Ooh, all for that. A turtle like, rune knight. Yeah. A a, a yanti rune knight? Like, there are a bunch of classes that would do really, really well with Rune Knight, and a bunch of classes that are pretty... Like, I can't even picture, like, an Elven Rune Knight. I can't picture... Even a Dwarven Rune Knight on some level would be really weird. Like it just dwarves it, like mountain giants. I could work. see it kind of working out, but he'd be the yeah, odd duck in the clan. It'd be odd, yeah. And I think that you know, that's really why be I'm Uncle Fester. so low mechanically. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, give, give it magic initiate and uh, and and mage hand. <laughs> so the rune knight. Okay, um, I think it's fun too, and it's got a lot of the that cool gianty flavor. And I agree with you that it definitely speaks to coming from, especially with that giant heritage, from coming from a more primitive side of the fighter, like the barbarian. So I actually think that's kind of a neat idea, but that core feature of their ruin their runes stops adding flavor at level seven there are no higher level runes runes and there's a pathetic few level seven runes honestly for this class to truly have its flavor take off i think they needed to give it a little bit more attention but as i've been listening to us talk about this and other ones prior to it something has occurred to me because i keep hearing the same thing it's gonna it looks like it's gonna run pretty strong through first tier second tier and then it's gonna peter out And it occurs to me, Wizards of the Coast realizes the same thing that Lee says. Most campaigns don't make it past second tier. So they're focusing on where their main player source is. And I I think, based on what we're seeing, that they are not putting as much effort into balancing out and making sure that the later abilities in these classes truly are balanced out and cool and effective. Is because they don't think that that many players are going to get there. So it's not their priority. Aside from a one-shot, I think there's a calculation that says, write whatever you want, I don't give a crap. It's level 15, it's level 17, it's level 18. 15, they'll pay attention to. 17, eh, if it's good, it's good. That's why some that are just good feel great. Because if you compare them with other level 17 abilities, they are. 
but in and of themselves, they're not great. They're just good. And if you look at 18, there are probably in fighters, maybe one or two that are good, that are great. If that, if that, and, and if you look at all subclasses in the game, not just this, not just the fighter class, I bet you, you don't get 10 great capstone abilities and subclasses, but I'm still going to keep beating the drum of consistency because that's what I've decided is what it boils down to complexity and consistency. My beef with the superiority dice wouldn't be the same if every time they rolled out a dice feature, it followed the same system, but every one of them is different. Every stinking one. Yep. Yep. And I would agree with you. I think we talked in the previous episode that using the exact same term or similar term created a problem because it confused people. In this case, we have the exact same thing. You're getting a goofy dice. You're getting a superiority dice. You're getting a, you're a cool magic hat dice, whatever that is. And it's a different mechanic each time. It helps make it more complex because it's not the same. If any feature that was a dice feature followed the same mechanical process. I get X dice. It is X big at X at Y level. And I get to use it this amount of times per the appropriate rest for my class. If that was how they did each of these dice features, it would be much easier for all these things. The complexity of battle master to other things would definitely not be there. It might still be complex because they're talking about bonus action choices versus other types of choices, but it would be easier to manage in a headspace simply because it's the same as the cleric I played the last campaign, and it will be the same as the rogue I'm about to play in the campaign that follows that. Now that you have restated my point for me perfectly, I will grant that you have finally come around to the right way of thinking. (laughs) I'll accept that. (laughs) You don't, you don't give me that credit every day. I'm just playing. <laughs> I know, man. You give me that credit every day. <laughs> the thing that bugs me about the Rune Knight is the actual name. There's nothing about this subclass that says knight to me. We yeah. just spent a large amount of time in this episode of the Runic Warrior would be talking better. About, Runic Warrior. Yeah. T- talking about, uh, you know. Sounds I, I mean, cooler, too. Yeah, it does. I mean. Bust out thesaurus.com and pick a different word. <laughs> right. Especially when you had three other classes that really should be knights. Yeah. Yeah. Heck, samurai is a type of knight. But we've got the uh, the baronet and the cavalier, but they're not knights. Yeah. But that's exactly what they're Even supposed the champion. to be. Even the champion's really a knight. I mean, that's, you know. Yeah. Nah, the champion could be He-Man or, you know, any other big muscle-bound oh, village yeah, okay. tough. That, that's fair. That's fair. All right, let's go ahead and close out this episode. Let's go over how our rankings fell out. Uh, I'll start at the bottom here. I'll do the subclasses in reverse order. Uh, number 10 for us was the Samurai with a 3.75 out of 10. Uh, next one was the Cavalier with a little bit over 4. Uh, the Champion came in at 8th uh, with, again, about a 4.5. A, uh, a little bit over 5 uh, thanks to my spectacular plus 9 rating. Uh, the, the banneret came in uh, in seventh. Uh, a little bit over six out of ten came the arcane archer. Uh, tied for fourth and fifth are the psi warrior and the rune warrior, uh, the rune knight. 
See, I, I mean, I'm already calling it the Runic Warrior. See, that's, you know. I find that funny that the two Tasha's subclasses were, contrary to other others, other classes where we've looked at this, where Tasha's has been right at the very top, the subclasses for Fighter from Tasha's, very much middle of the road. Fighter didn't need as much as some of the other classes, I think, as part of the reason. I think they worked harder to improve some of the classes that already had weaker yeah. stuff, and Fighter's got, like, after attention with what was left over. Yeah, I can see that. Okay, that's fair. Um, number three with a 7.3 uh, is the Eldritch Knight. Uh, number two with a almost a 7.8 is the Battlemaster. And then the first place ranked subclass uh, was the Echo Knight. And I think that we can all say that it's the strength of character of the Echo Knight uh, that really kind of uh, kind of guided it. It's an amazing concept, man. I love I love all of the concepts behind it. Yeah. Uh, and 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 uh, super strong, although, you know, uh, Lee Wanika, I know you you were you were advocating hard for uh, the Echo Knight and the Battlemaster uh, being being closer in powers than I think that uh, Glenn and I were were giving it credit for, um, and uh, they became uh, number one and number two with about a half a point separating them. So I think that uh, your argument probably holds more water than we were giving you credit for. So they're the three highest I had ranked for what I'd like to play next. So yeah. I- I, and I think despite a lot of difference between the three of us on various individual classes, I think the three that came out on top were the three that we pretty much all were in our top four. Yeah. If I, re- if I recall the way that looked. And I think that's kind of telling. That means they're all there. So we each had at least one thing that ranked out of sync with the other. But in general, we were kind of in sync on most other things, even if they're for different reasons, like what we might like one thing less, one thing more. Uh, and I think that's very indicative of the strength of the fighter class. Look, this is a class that gives you extra times to hit. It gives you extra abilities as far as second rest, extra attack, all those, uh, all those types of things. And guess what? You get fighting styles and a stupid amount of feats. Every one of these can benefit from the right feat to augment it, to get it where it needs to be. That's one thing that we really did not talk about was feats. And we're probably going to have to do a whole separate episode about feats because of the amount of diverse, although it, it would be a hundred episodes with the way that we talk about them. But the point is that that that's the one thing that we really didn't discuss here is how much feats will change your fighter build. Uh, like, fighters it, are very it, it, the massive. The effect is massive. Yeah. Yeah. They're, the effect are massive. And, so. and they can all be different for the different subclasses too. So, I mean, there's no way we could actually go through all of that. Well, I guess we could have, but it would have taken multiple, multiple episodes. I will save a lot of this part of the discussion for a future discussion on feats, but I will say this. With the exception of the our top three, if you chose the right feats, you could take any one of these subclasses and build at least one other of these subclasses and be just as effective. And I think that's the strength of the fighter class as a whole. And part of the reason why some of the other things ranked lower, because if you can replicate the features with a pair or selection of feats that a fighter is going to get, you can literally pick which one you want to play. And then your number two Build it with your feats. I can build an arcane archer by choosing a battle master and the right feats. And be just as effective, call myself an arcane archer from the RP standpoint and be just as effective without having those specific features. The specific, the specific arrows won't be the same, but I'm going to be doing battlefield control with my maneuvers 
and adding spells because I have a couple spell features that add other things. Or even play a Battlemaster and add the Eldritch Adept feat and take all the, the Eldritch powers. Now you've got your Battlemaster plus an Eldritch Knight. Like, it's absolutely... Yep. Like, the, the feats really will change your, your build so much. Sorry, go on. No worries. I was just going to jump in on the Battlemaster because it keeps coming back up. And at the risk of starting uh, Fighter War 3 again, point out that if a specific subclass with the right tweaks and changes is powerful enough to take the place of most of the other subclasses as though and make them obsolete either it's designed super super well or it's too powerful because it's taking away it's you're saying that that one class has the ability that one subclass has the ability to take away the uniqueness of every other subclass we've discussed just about. And that's what I think is the weakness in the other subclasses. I don't think it's a weakness in the Battlemaster. Okay. I so think you don't it's think the Battlemaster is broken. You think that all of the other subclasses are just crap. Well, I did I did give it the very well-designed idea, but if they can't come up with something that complex for every other subclass, though? But they chose not to. Like I said, choosing to do things like the Echo Knight makes it on par and can't be matched, plus its flavor. Choosing to do something like that with the Arcane Archer, it's an Arcane Archer. Let it Arcane Archer every single shot. Oh, no, definitely improve it. Right? So if you did that, then the Battlemaster can't match it. It can match what it does now, but if you fixed it, it couldn't. Okay. That's I kind of get point. what you, Okay, I get what you're saying, and I see that, I see that perspective. I still uh, would throw out there that it might just be a little bit tweaked, but that's okay. I think, friends, what we are finding is that there is uh, probably more discussion space on this particular topic. Look, we've got our we have got our production schedule for the next through a month and a half anyway, pretty well nailed down because there's a bunch of stuff coming out in these next couple of months here. Maybe we'll see more discussion about some of these fighter uh, some of these fighter subclasses when we uh, when we start getting ready to put out that uh, how to fix your fighter uh, uh, that how to fix your fighter publication. So. And a great way to join into that part of the production is by joining the conversation starting once you hear this podcast, right? So join in the conversation. Tell us what you think. Tell us you know, what you like, what you agree. Tell us some of the things you would like to do with some of these. Tell us where you think the problems are or tell us why you think we're just absolutely wrong. We tell each other that all the time. That's essentially why this is a two-part episode because we spent at least a half hour to 45 minutes telling each other we were wrong. Feel free to do that, but just do it in the comments. If you hit us up on uh, Facebook IM and say, hey, this is what I think, I say save it for the comments. Don't forget, in the comments, just encourage Josh and Lee to always agree with Glenn. We'll get through things much smoother. Your episodes will run more efficiently. It'll be great. <laughs> thank you very much for listening everybody we hope that you guys enjoyed this two-parter on the fighter subclass as much as we enjoyed putting it out because honestly this conversation was uh was fabulous uh it was a good time so we'll look forward to the next one so please be watching the groups very closely uh because the next poll for the next class uh will be hitting shortly after this episode comes out so we hope that uh that you all vote and uh we'll talk to you then thank you for joining us this has been tabletop journeys we would love to hear your feedback on our show today. You can join us at www.ttjourneys.com, where you can subscribe to the blog to leave comments and see all the content that we publish beyond the podcast. And make sure you join our growing online community. You can follow us on Twitter at TT Journeys, 
and join us on Facebook just by searching Tabletop Journeys there. You can also reach us by email at podcast at ttjourneys.com. And if you want to catch early access to our episodes and some of the other benefits we have coming down the pipeline, you can also support our production at patreon.com slash ttjourneys. If you're listening to us on Stitcher, iTunes, Podchaser, Spotify, Audible, or any other podcast platform, we would really appreciate if you would like and subscribe to the podcast. Full episodes come out every week on Saturdays and every Wednesdays. We'll feature our side quest series where we talk about pretty much anything tabletop oriented. Thank you all so much for listening and for being a part of our growing community. And in the words of another traveler on our path, we bid you shade and sweet water.